Hi, pals. Allison here. This week's episode is a little different in that it's focused specifically on the costuming and undercrackers of the 1995 BBC and A&E co-produced miniseries adaptation of Pride and Prejudice starring Colin Firth and Jennifer Ely, written by noted nemesis of Emma Thompson, Andrew Davies. In just a minute, you'll hear me, Julie, and our two amazing guests. Uh, You'll find out who they are shortly. But first, I need to mention that this episode comes with a visual aid. Uh, Depending on how you're listening to this, it might be linked for for you in the episode description. Um, It'll be a Google Drive link. uh, So just look for something that looks like a Google Drive link. If it is not there, you can find it on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash podlandercast and on Twitter at Podlandercast. It's a PowerPoint. Uh, you can certainly listen to the episode without looking at it, but you might enjoy it more if you were. Um, and if you want to still listen for now, I don't know, you're commuting or something, um, you will only need it for the second half of the episode. So you can listen for a little bit and then you'll need to uh, to pause and go seek that out if you so desire. Um, that's it. Enjoy our costumes chat. Ooh. Was that good? Was it loud enough? Well done. I think it was good. It was good. It was really good. Uh, you know what? I just is that. Wait, hold on, hold on. Is that portrait Everybody of took Gus a sip. behind you? Oh my gosh! Thank you so much for asking. This is actually my sweet Ruby. Oh, <gasps> hello, my friend Ruby. used to teach uh, those paint night classes. Do you remember going out in public with other people and you'd all <laughs> congregate in a room um, and drink wine and paint pictures where they all looked alike? So the first one I did was this lighthouse that's over me that was an Edward Hopper-inspired lighthouse. And the second one was a paint-your-pet class where you would send in a picture ahead of time and they would have the sketch ready for you to go. So I obviously did my sweet girl, Ruby, who at the time was a tiny little angel who was missing most of her teeth and stuck her tongue out all the time. She was the only cat at paint night that night. It was just dogs and Ruby. So she's very popular. And you can tell in each painting exactly when Keenan tipped over into being drunk because um, (laughs) the lighthouse is very architecturally unsound. It's a little wobbly and her whiskers were the last to go and they are extremely gloopy. So (laughs) (laughs) Um, this is an auditory medium. Um, Maybe, maybe we'll post a picture. Keenan, will you send me a picture of those to put on our Twitter feed or something? Okay. Um, Cause this is like a really solid bit. Like this is a good opener, but it, but there is a visual aid. We need a visual aid. So look for the visual aid and welcome to Austin, Austin, a Podlander drunk cast podcast, volume one imbibe and prejudice. We are talking about uh, this is in the order you're hearing it, the second to last episode on the Pride and Prejudice mi- bleh, on the Pride and Prejudice miniseries um, adapted by Andrew Davies, known nemesis of Emma Thompson, um, oh. and uh, we are talking about the costumes. It's our first all costumes episode in quite a while since the days of Terry Dressbach, I think. Uh, and I'm so excited about it because Julie and I are joined this morning by not one but two guests. You've already hey. heard friend of the show, Keenan, um, our pal Sweet Nothings, noted lingerie expert, lingerie, lingerie influencer, lingerie um, bleh, bleh, blogger. I don't know. Is the, are these the appropriate terms, Keenan? They are all appropriate for someone who works much harder at it than I do. So currently, <laughs> currently I 
I may lingerie coasting alonger, but yes. <laughs> All right, it, you're you're killing it. Uh, we are also joined uh, by a Twitter friend who I am talking to in like with human voices for the first time, Emma Fraser, who is a really great critic and specifically one of my favorite writers to read on costuming in general. So, Emma, thank you so much for being here on this weird podcast. No, thank you for asking. And also, because I am a Fraser, it feels right that I'm on a an Outlander origin uh, podcast. So. That's, what? I mean, and I'm a legit absolutely. Fraser. Like, we scared my dad's ashes at Culloden, that's how legit. See, I was going to be the obnoxious person to be like, oh my god, Fraser on Outlander? Are you related? And you are. Yeah. <laughs> wow. wow. That is extremely cool. Um, it's really great. Also, a thing occurred to me right before we sat down to do this, which is that part of our rustic charm, as we've been calling it recently, is uh, all of my bad dialect work, none of which I will be doing today. <laughs> There's um, a non-zero chance that that will happen today. <laughs> nope. None of it. None of it. Um <laughs> There is one more reason that I'm really excited about this. Um, and it's because somehow, like, accidentally, uh, I was like, who do I want to talk about costumes with besides Keenan? Obviously, I'm going to ask somebody I know I'm going to I'm going to like shoot my shot. I'm going to I'm going to slide right into Emma's DMs and say, like, hey, do you want to come be on this podcast? Maybe she'll do it. That would be cool. And um, she responded. was like, yes, of course. Uh, also, I've never seen that many series and it made me so happy it's like the most so she has just recently seen it for the first time you're welcome yeah no, it's weird it's it's like such a huge cultural touchstone and it came out i realized when i was 13 so at that age i guess i was probably thinking i don't want to watch something that reminds me of school i wanted to watch the x-files i was kind of like leaning into that like kind of entertainment and yeah i just never watched it i've not seen the 2005 version my first experience of these characters was actually death comes to pemberley because i like matthew reese and uh, matthew good so that was my first experience and then then this so wow that's so cool well first I'm of so all happy. we will absolutely have to do another one of these after the 2005 after we do the 2005 movie um if you are cool with that definitely i want to see it now actually after watching this i was like i now want to like delve deep so oh good that's good. And I love Death Comes to Pemberley. We haven't gotten there either. So when we do that, we will have to do another costumes one. And if you want, we can like say, this is a costumes episode. And then we just talk about the Matthews. That's fine with me. Because <laughs> like, it's we d- do both that. of them. Both of them. And then maybe we'll do a wine show episode too. Like, let's just, let's just do it. Um, so how, what did you think? What, what was your first experience of, um, of this uh, formative experience for so many of us. I imprinted on Colin Firth at a young age, I think. And also, yeah, my, my Jane Austen uh, relationship is pretty spotty as well. Like, I tried reading Emma a bunch because I'm narcissistic, I guess. And I was like, I should read it. It's my name. Um, I never finished it. I watched the Gwyneth Paltrow version. Love Clueless, <laughs> obviously. Um, but with this, I kind of went in knowing that Jane Austen's funny and that it is satire. And that was the thing that stood out to me the most, actually more than the romance, was that it was talking about these really bad situations for women that they didn't really have a way out of in this really, like, funny, like, and sometimes sad way. And 
yeah, I know I just really enjoyed that. The one thing I will say is obviously the the big Colin Firth moment, the the wet moment. I thought I was a little underwhelmed. I thought it was gonna uh, be I thought it was gonna be like more intense. And I was like, oh yeah, cool, he's wet. <laughs> I mean, I do feel that maybe that moment has for people who haven't seen it yet been for, uh, let's say, adult people who are attracted to men who haven't seen it yet might end up slightly underwhelmed. Because when you're 13, you're like, oh, my God, you can sort of see a dark shape that might be one of his nipples. Oh, my God. And now it's like, no, he's just wearing a large piece of wet linen. And it is still hot, but... In a different way. But I think that's possible. That could be overhyped. It's like what you were talking about, Allison, where there's been this sort of cultural imagining that this moment of him cresting out of the lake has happened. When in fact, and it's it, not like that. Yeah. It didn't happen at all. But we've all just in our hearts and minds and and desires decided it happened. So that <laughs> might have been built up a little. That's bit. the vibe. I thought it was going to be like this, like half flick kind of like bond girl moment coming out of the water like totally and then it was it was pretty lucky which i kind of liked i wish that we no i'm nope no i don't i was gonna say i wish that we had that moment but i really don't i think i just maybe i'm gonna relish imagining the like daniel craig and the tiny trunks coming out of the water of it all with Mm. colin firth just forever just like maybe Maybe that'll just. What if maybe they? Just what if it, it was like that? What if they were side by side coming out of the same water? <laughs> I would allow it. Well, I will if we're going to do that, then I want to. I want that scene in Death Comes to Pemberley because then it can be Matthew Good and Matthew Reese both coming out of the water in their and their big white shirts that are also Linen underwear. underwear shirt underwear shirts <laughs> that, i am never gonna get over that i am never gonna get over the <laughs> fact that they're just traveling with skid marks daily <laughs> i mean julie if i could if i could reassure you and jump the gun a little bit on the lingerie section yes. remember that the word lingerie is related to all of the garments that were washed regularly okay good they were the ones that were closest to the body. And so for women, that would have been their shifts. And for men, that would have been their shirts that are upsetting to you. Their choney shirt. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk more about it we'll, when we get to everywhere. We'll do it. Before, oh, we so go, before we get into like talking about clothing bit, which is obviously the reason for the season in this case, um, some like very basic questions. So, uh, Emma, who uh, is the biggest butthole? Who was your favorite butthole in in this Pride and Prejudice miniseries? Like your favorite love to hate? Uh, Mrs. Bennett, although I kind of just hate her. <laughs> She's a lot. She's a lot to take in. Just a bit too much. Uh, Mr. Collins would be the other one, just because he's wonderfully hateable and obviously follows the whole like dislike of like the clergy. Like I guess Jane Austen really didn't like Vickers. Uh, like, yeah, so those two, I would say. There are a lot of really disappointing religious figures in Austin. That's really true. I was thinking about that. I think the only one that at least Emma Thompson wants us to love is Edward Ferris. Who eventually, yeah, yeah, but otherwise there's some real duds. Some real, Mm -hmm. yeah, some real duds. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I, Emma Thompson does want us to love Edward Ferris. I'm not sure... I'm not sure that that Jane Austen wants us to love that first. Debatable. Excellent That's point. Debatable. Um, 
Great. Okay. So we did butthole. Do you have a favorite scene? Oh, favorite scene. I kind of loved, and this is so small and silly, the, the bonnet chat about ugly bonnets. Uh, <laughs> I think it's in episode two when Lydia's like, yeah, I've got this ugly bonnet. It's great. And I, I don't know why. <laughs> I found her kind of endearing, and I don't know if it's because I really like the actress, because I really didn't like her in Death Comes to Pemberley. Um, so I kind of found her weirdly endearing and in a kind of like Amy March kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that ugly bonnet scene was pretty, uh, very weirdly stuck in my head. <laughs> Yeah, mm-hmm. she is very Amy March. She's extremely Amy March, which I think may- means because Kitty, go away, Kitty, hang Kitty. But um, but then Mary is Beth, which also tracks. I think because I mean I love Beth, but man, you remove some of that lovability, and all of a sudden you've got Mary Bennett. I'm gonna go ahead and st- I'm 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 down with this theory. I'm sticking. I'm sticking <laughs> with this. This is good because it. It works with Joe and it works with Joe and um, um, Lizzie. Meg too. Mm-hmm. Joe and Lizzie and Meg and um, Jane. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've cracked a. I'm sure this observation has happened millions of times. Anyway, Emma, <laughs> I was gonna say uh, the, the stomp across the, the the field getting the six inches of of mud on her petticoat. That that was pretty cool as well. I, I yeah. enjoyed the the kind of that vibe of walking. <laughs> She did a lot of that. Just stomping yeah. around in mud. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, that's what, uh, it's gonna, um, I don't know, March is going to be like for us here in Chicago. Mm. Although I guess maybe like right now too. It's, yeah. It's gross out. And if uh, I walking had, is what I do for fun now. So If I had to walk to the Lucas estate, I would be covered in mud right now. Mm-hmm. Totally. Okay. So um, any other, any other general miniseries thoughts that you want to share, Emma? Um. Just actually, I out of the couples, I was I obviously wanted Lizzie and Darcy to get together, and I knew they did. But I was kind of weirdly more invested in Jane and Bingley because it was just very sweet and just yeah, the wholesome nature of it, and they just seemed to really love each other. So I was into that one. That was kind of the one that I really, really wanted to happen. Yeah, I love that. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. that that was like it, the main thing. Like, yeah, like I think because I knew the, about the Lizzie and Darcy arc where that was going, and I didn't know the other one, so I was kind of just like, "Oh, cool! Like, where could this go?" <laughs> so yeah, that would be the other major one. Oh, that's great. Um, uh, Keenan has just typed into our Zoom, "Hi, Nancy," because my cat's being an asshole in the background. Nancy, she's being cute. She, I mean, she's being cute, but she's that's a that's a cooking surface. <laughs> Nancy, get down. <laughs> oh, no. It's just the, the cat show is just going to happen behind me for that's a minute. That's fine. Because I think Tom's got his headphones on. Anyway, um, gra- that's awesome. I think that they're just such human golden retrievers that it's really hard to not love them. Like, both of them. You're like, oh, you're gonna, you're so cute. You're going to be so happy. That's so nice. <laughs> and she went to uh, London, and he didn't know. And that was just, like, that's heartbreaking. And she was just so upset. And, yeah. That that would be the vibe I was looking for with us. Yeah, so those two. Do you have uh, a favorite Austin in general? I don't know how much you had to read in school, or if there's a like, oh God, fine, I'll read Jane Austen thing that happens when you grow up in the UK and are female. Like, well, funnily enough, we didn't do any Austen in any of my English lit classes. We did a lot of Dickens. Um, some of the other classes 
uh, did, but we just never. So I've actually never read an Austin the whole way through. Um, sorry. Ooh. I, yeah, oh, no. I, so. oh no, it's fun. I'm I like- I really like um, like Thomas Hardy and like so I'm more into like for that. I mean, it's slightly later in the century, but like the more depressing stuff, and then. Sherlock Holmes was like my big thing because I'm I'm into the mysteries and the the murder I guess. Um, so yeah, no Jane Austen has weirdly passed me by. <laughs> and it's weird because I guess being British as well, you end up with this thing where you maybe lean into stuff that is not from here if you can. Because we did so much Shakespeare and things like that was the like every year we did different Shakespeare's. So you kind of like go outside of. Or I like Virginia Woolf, so I'm slightly later in my uh, literature. See, now I'm just curious what the things are. All of a sudden I'm thinking, like, what are the staples when you're in a Canadian English class? Like, what are the books that are formative there? What are the books that are formative when when you're in the UK? Um, Because here it's like... Huck Finn, not anymore even really though. Lord of the Flies. I don't think so. We certainly do Shakespeare. Um I, I mean, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. I read that. We um, did the Grapes of Wrath. Yeah. We did of Mice and Men. We didn't do the Grapes mm-hmm. of Wrath. We did of Mice and Men. What about you, Keenan? Do you have like things that books that you associate with everybody has to read these in English class? I mean, um, for me in high school, it was definitely Pride and Prejudice. It was definitely Jane Eyre. Um, Hamlet and King Lear were the two Shakespeare's that we did. Um, oh, and Midsummer Night's Dream, of course. Um, definitely Huck Finn, because I remember writing a paper on it. Um, gosh, I wasn't prepared for this question. I loved all of my English classes and can't think of a darn book I read. Well, I mean, it was a while ago. We are all ancient now. Uh, I, I grow weary and old. Because yeah, we did like we did Chaucer as well, which is intense. Like, that one is always insane. And then other things, like I said, we did French Lieutenant's Woman, and then I did Theatre Studies as well, so I did like a bunch of like Brecht and that kind of Chekhov and things like that. Um... So yeah, like it, it's it's kind of insane that Jane Austen isn't actually mandatory. <laughs> it should be. Yeah, like um and so that's how I've somehow like it's in my obviously I know the kind of tropes and stuff. Although the double like wedding, am I allowed to mention that? Because I just realized oh, yeah. spoiler. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. The double wedding, like I was like, oh, this is where double weddings come from. Like I had this like <laughs> moment of like, oh, I get it now. So there were those moments where I'm like, oh, this makes sense through everything else, like the kind of prism of pop culture and literature and things. Oh, that's <laughs> fascinating. Had you um have you ever seen Bridget Jones's diary? Like, have you ever seen those, any or Bride and Prejudice, any of the adaptations that are Bridget Jones? But I haven't seen, I realize I haven't seen Austin land or the Jane Austen book club. I realize there's a lot of like Austin kind of, I haven't seen the Jane Austen book club. Uh, you can, you can give Austin land. A pass, I think personally, that's that's kind of part where i'm like i should watch it but also i don't want to (laughs) (laughs) the one that i'm a big crank about is um lost in austin it just made me very angry don't watch it i think it's bad (laughs) (laughs) and they're now doing the cw version right that's just been announced yeah they just announced that 
So it's gonna um, be sexy, right? Because yeah, it's like contemporary retelling of Jane Austen stories. Is it like Austin Riverdale? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. that I think is the vibe. Yeah. Um, which I Americans mean, love that shit. <laughs> yeah, we sure do. I um am not gonna object to like a hot Archie. You know what? Give me a hot Archie Mansfield Park. Like that's the only way that Mansfield Park is gonna be tolerable. Please. I had to intake breath right there because I'm like, we all hate on Mansfield Park. So the yeah. only way to make it good is to make Archie-fy it. Yeah, just like we'll do a little hot, like a hot hot, teens, hot teens, hot teens Mansfield Park. But like now, so I don't know what the I don't know how you make that contemporary. I don't know. I Mm -hmm. I developed a whole this is how you would do Northanger Abbey if it was right now theory this week, which I am going to keep to myself because it's absurd. But um, maybe someday maybe when we get to Northanger Abbey. You we'll have do to it. tell me oh, off I camera. I will. I will. <laughs> I thought this was going to be one of those. I'm going to keep it to myself so that I can sell the book things. But no, you just know. think it's silly. <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's not. So no, I mean, because the, the one I'm actually doing is the one that I've talked about multiple times on the podcast. So if somebody wants to, to like snake that out from under me, they're already in process. So um, anyway. Uh, costumes. I want to know what this is the kind of this is where Julie and I flying by the seat of her pants comes to bite us in the ass. What I want to know from MN Keenan is would you prefer to like steer this conversation and Julie and I just go, oh my God, that's interesting. And then pepper you with questions. Or do you want us to sort of interview you? Like how do we want to do lingerie first and then and like undergarments and then costumes? Do we want to talk about how they interact? Do the two of you want to interview each other like your Madonna and Britney Spears or like whoever when you know when they have like the celeb like Beyonce interviewing the ghost of Rock Hudson like that (laughs) one of those. Um, For my part, I have a PowerPoint that I figured we could put in the Slack later. So maybe start with costumes and then we'll we'll drill down to lingerie. That's great. Okay. Is that all good with you, Emma? Yeah, no, that sounds great. I don't have a PowerPoint. <laughs> that is on brand for us, so you're cool. <laughs> that I, that is also um, extremely on brand for Keenan. I think more importantly, oh, yes. Um, like, Kenan, and I'm excited about it. Yes. I'm excited too. Yeah. Uh, great. Okay. Um, so, as a person who's very interested and does a lot of writing about costume design, I'm sure you see a lot of like it's Regency. Look at look at the Spencer. Look at the bonnet. Bon- yeah. Look at all of this stuff. Well, they're going to get in their barouche box and go away. Um, so, first of all, are you ever just sort of bored by this era? And second, how does this one, in a general sense, in your opinion, measure up? I was going to say, I guess I feel. Period. Like, if you say costume drama to me, I would automatically roll my eyes just because of having grown up here and just how much time and money was invested in that, which is great because I know people love it around the world and the BBC are particularly very good at it. But for me, my interest in costume, contemporary has always been my area of expertise, um, or basically 20th century, but more the last 20, 30 years. Um, but I do love going back and finding out where things come from. Mm-hmm. So like the fashion and costume history that you get from watching these uh, shows and then me getting to do a deep dive, like I've just done before this uh, into those costumes, I actually found really fascinating. So it, this is, it's nice in the way that you've given me an opportunity to like actually give myself more knowledge, if that makes sense. 
Cool. And um, what I really found interesting when I was reading about it was about how um, Diana Collin, how people were like, oh, it looks pretty accurate, but at times it's not accurate. And it's like, that's not what costume is. It's interpreting the period and then telling the themes of the story through the costumes. They're not meant to look exactly like how they wore them because no one wants that because it would just be really boring and you wouldn't be able to tell (laughs) who's rich and who's bad. And, you know, I, and I love color theme is like one of my favorite things. So I really particularly love the color theme of this story. What did that say to you? Like, what things did you pull out from it? I because I love costumes, but have nowhere near your level of expertise. Um, I just get really excited about costume design and geek out about it. Um, But even I was like, "Ooh, wow. All of the garish colors are on the people who are jerks. Uh, That's really that. Like, I picked up on that. I picked up. I really I got it. And then I was thinking about like. Oh, the, that reminds me of the new, dumb, but I love it dearly live action Cinderella where Kate Blanchett is constantly in like mustard and you just start in like reveling in it um, while everyone else is like, this is normal clothing for a human being um, or fairy princess, as it were. Uh, so, yeah, what what did the sort of color themes say to you about this story? So, yeah, like the, the garish colors, the fact that like uh, the Bingley sisters, although one's not called Bingley, is she? She's yeah, Mrs. Hurst. She's married. Hurst. Mm-hmm. So that they are in this like really audacious and it's not just the color, it's the style, it's the um, material, it's the feathers. They've got all these embellishments. You can, when they enter a room, they don't look like anyone else. They're just like a flashing sign of like, we're rich dicks and <laughs> you should pay attention to us kind of thing. <laughs> And I just, I love Anna Chancellor anyway. So just seeing her like in this kind of character where she is getting to like jerk it up um, was just really fun for me. Um, So I really, really love that. And then I love the kind of contrast, the kind of country girls of the Bennets who, who now they would be, um, oh, hello cat. They would be like totally like, cottagecore influences if this was now and they're in these nap dresses and it's fun to see these kind of like lines between 2020 and 1810 they are totally cottagecore oh my god <laughs> like all think of a about sudden them I... drying all those flowers uh, well like this, hanging out in the shed just talking to each other while they're like by color in size, and, well, sorting. Phoebe Bridgers plays in the background. I just it like oh that really that that is perfect. That's so perfect, and it works right in line with my Elizabeth Bennet is a bisexual theory, which just like because that's just, yeah. Oh my god, totally cottagecore. That's like they would one hundred percent hang out with Hannah Brentock. I'm so into this. I love that so much. Um, yeah, they look. They just always look particularly. Um, uh, Jane and Lizzie look so um, pure, right? Like, like the tits are out and they're hot. They're sitting high, but they're always in this sort of virginal white or pale pink or light blue. Or Lizzie gets that really lovely dark green sometimes, but that's like as far as it goes. Um, whereas, like even Lydia is definitely more ostentatious in the pun, not intended gross um, in the way uh, that she dresses. They're just like, there's a lot of really cool storytelling in the way the Bennett sisters are costumed. I think. 
And even Darcy, like he has like an arc, um, particularly in the last episode, you see he starts wearing lighter colors because he's finally allowing himself to like feel things. Um, whereas like Bingley is always in slightly warmer tones, whereas he, uh, Darcy, yeah, is like dark and broody, obviously. And then in the final episode, he's kind of wearing these light grays and it's just, just seeing that kind of even menswear can obviously tell these stories. Um, and the introduction of trousers, which I thought was interesting. This is when trousers started to become like a, a male thing, except when they were dancing. And I saw a video with the costume designer, uh, Dina Car- Colin, sorry. And she was talking about how Colin Firth was really worried about his calf size. Um, he was worried his calves would look like not masculine enough, I guess. Like it was what I inferred from her saying that. And, um, so yeah, during the dances, he was worried that his calves would look too puny. Um, but obviously they don't, so. No, he's, he looks okay. <laughs> so it's just funny I that obviously, so sorry, I was going to say that he's so used to obviously wearing trousers or whatever. And then in this period, he would have to wear these kind of tight, like, instead. And then uh, he's concerned about his legs. <laughs> Well, he doesn't. Wouldn't need to it be? be awesome if that was the one thing that actually Fitzwilliam Darcy worried about? <laughs> yeah. Like every morning he woke woke up in his bedroom in Pemberley, like ah, oh, stretched. There was the coffee waiting for him right there, and then he looked down and just pitied his calves. <laughs> like <laughs> I really like that the costume designer well said the coat, like his coat. People were asking where they could get it from, and obviously that's custom built, but. Uh, it was enticing to a modern audience. And that's also what costumes should be doing is telling the period, but also being attractive as well to the viewers watching. Also, mm-hmm. I'm so glad you told me about Colin Firth having calf self-consciousness. Cause I'm going to talk about that when we get to underwear. Oh. Mm-hmm. And I oh, didn't know what they, I didn't realize that this was um, a concern or an anxiety of the past that, was discovered anew in the present by Colin Firth <laughs> when it came time to put his costume on. So that's super cool. Amazing. I'm just reassured that someone that beautiful is also like, I don't know. I feel like, do I look okay? Um, like one of the best looking people on the planet is like, but my calves are too small. Um, that's, it's always good. It's always good to be reassured. Everybody's got to hang up about something. <laughs> when you, Emma, when you sit down to analyze a uh, costume design, as you do so often, and there, I mean, I, I'll do a little ramble at the end about all of the many places that you can read Emma's work because it's really great. But, um, but I read quite often. I mean, you do a costume of the week piece, and um, I read a lot of the really lovely analyses you do of films, but also TV shows and all that. Um, when you sit down to like pick apart a costume design and really get into it where do you start what's the first question that you ask i mean i i would say color is one of the main things just because it's color language is something in every single period that is being shot for film or tv um regardless if it's contemporary or period there is always a color language even if it's not necessarily a conscious choice you can always kind of weave this thread and you can always interpret things as well um even if say maybe a costume designer didn't necessarily intend something you can be like oh they use red here or maybe a director has said this character doesn't wear red ever for whatever reason, or if there's going to be a lot of blood, then obviously red gets taken out. So color is definitely one of the first places I start. Um, Patterns, if there's anything that you keep seeing, it it can depend, obviously, because if something has a lot of costume changes, it's easier to notice patterns than if it doesn't. 
But even something like The Walking Dead, which obviously they tend to wear the same stuff like a lot because they don't have much changes. Even that has a certain kind of language that you can interpret to do with borrowed clothes, stuff like that. That's kind of the area I look at. You kind of look at it like you would dialogue in a weird way. Um, if you're kind of like looking at the dialogue or something, it's just a different version of dialogue. That's cool. I hadn't thought about it like that. That's really interesting. Is there a costume in this that you found found particularly interesting? Was there like sort of a high watermark for you? Um, in terms of weirdly, I keep talking about color. I'm sorry. Um, but in terms of um, Lizzie, when she wore the slightly warmer kind of it's like an amber kind of honey tone um, Spencer, uh, that kind of stood out to me. I think that's in the third episode when she's away, but she's still kind of like the country girl, but there's this, this injection of a warmer color. Um, that one was one that I was like, oh, that's that's slightly different to what she's been wearing. Um so those kind of shifts in tones. And then also, really, I just love the nightwear. <laughs> I'm I'm such a... <laughs> Allison does too. I, yes. Jane particularly, like kind of those ruffles um, were a key. And then um, uh, Miss Bingley in all her garishness just because she's that bitch. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> so yeah, those would probably be the ones um, that were like my standouts kind of I think the wedding gown was nice um which wedding dresses always are but that's not kind of like normally the thing that I'm most looking for it's those kind of more normal moments right well I mean I feel like uh, there's a natural overlap point here and I want to if you have other observations that you want to share or if things come up naturally obviously I want to keep talking about costumes um but you mentioned the nightwear, which seems like the inevitable overlap of the sort of two conversations that we're having. Um, so let's talk about let's talk about bisexual nighties um, and and other things that people sleep in. Uh, I don't know how that dovetails with your PowerPoint, Keenan. Um, at what point do we need to start looking at our visual aid? Um, I can start the visual aid now. It is more corset focused because that's where I got the most questions from the drunk slack. Um, and it's also, I'm a bra blogger essentially. So my, I'm very boob focused. Um, who isn't as many of us are. (laughs) So, um, the PowerPoint is mostly corset, but, um, and I will share visual aids and I'll have some, one of the slack runners put it somewhere where people can see the pictures. Um, but one thing that I was so thankful to Scotty, who Emma is my twin sister, who was on a previous episode and talked about the country dances and all the parlor dances and things that they were doing. She kind of set us up really nicely for talking about Pride and Prejudice when she talked about when you're looking at the kinds of dances people are doing in the ballroom, think about what came before and what is coming next. And so what came before was... Um, the Elizabethan court, the Tudors, Louis Quatorze, the Sun King, where it was very performative. A lot of ballet comes directly from this period, which is very mannered, very exaggerated, very arch, a very kind of artificial way of moving. And then after this time period, we start to move into the waltz was the first big one. It came at the end of the 18 teens was when it finally started to become still a little scandalous, but a little bit more widely accepted in ballrooms because they were clasping each other in their they arms. They were touching each other all the way. And you had to like hold on to your partner. Oh, 
Kel scandal. Um, so, and then polkas and like all of the other things that were coming after. And the Regency is a really interesting time period because it's a time period of huge transition and upheaval, like across the board. We got revolutions going around the world in America, in France, all over the place. Um, England's doing some imperialism all over the place. Like there are influences that are like crashing into each other and spreading from country to country. It's really, really interesting time period. And what's really cool about um, Pride and Prejudice in particular and how we look at the costumes in the adaptations is because our two kind of touchstone adaptations, at least for me personally, I don't want to speak for the world, but for me personally are Andrew Davies' PNP, my PP, and uh, the Joe Wright, Karen Knightley, Pride and Prejudice from 2005. So they are... they were uh, released 10 years apart and yet the chronology of when they're set is flipped because we mostly think that Jane Austen wrote Pride and Prejudice in 1797, but it was not published until 1813. And that is a huge chunk of time. I mean, it's only, you know, a little over a decade, but in terms of what has changed in the world and what has changed in England, enormous. So let me jump over to the PowerPoint. I I am so excited right now. (laughs) And I have to cue it up first. Hang on. Wait. I can't. What did I do to deserve this luxury? Julie is literally pumping the air. Yes. Um, I feel like this is a a decent point to mention that... um, uh, I don't know if you figured this out yet, but Emma's British, so she's in the UK. Uh, so, um, so it's three. Well, at this point, three thirty p.m., three forty p.m. where she is, ten forty a.m. where Keenan is, and I admit that that nine forty a.m. is not early. Um, but Julie and I are used to sleeping in of a Sunday, so we are like still drinking our coffee, um, whereas Keenan <laughs> has a PowerPoint. Yeah, Keenan's about to present. <laughs> oh my god oh my this god so great. let's do this okay guys webster's dictionary defines a corset as <laughs> okay so the first slide says corsets are just bras they are not tools of the patriarchy designed by men to oppress women we have to let this myth go, you guys. It's very boring. It's also very modern a take. Um, the idea that corsets, oh no, women are going to faint and oh, um, genuinely came out of Hollywood. Like we see some of our first, uh, th- there were caricatures, obviously, in as far back in time as you can go. Men who have drawn caricatures and political cartoons have made fun of how people dress, particularly women. Hmm. Um, but uh, this, we have such a, a strong, actually, this is a good jumping off point for talking about Pride and Prejudice anyway. So much of our understanding of what the past was like does come from film. And this is going to recur throughout the PowerPoint. Um, we always have to remember that what we're seeing is a reflection of storytellers. And what we're seeing is a reflection of um uh, what people are, how cho- people are choosing to tell the story, what they're choosing to focus on. Like Emma was talking about color is always a choice from the costume designer. Um, and so when people think of corsets, they tend to think of like super wasp waisted, um, Scarlett O'Hara. Um, there's even some Judy Garland film from like the forties or fifties where it's all, it's just 
a rainbow of petticoats as far as the eye can see of all of these girls getting dressed and giggling with bouncy curls and stuff. And one of them is holding onto the bedpost and the other is yanking on the corset. And that may very well have happened at certain points in time. Um, but that has not been true of corsets history throughout all of time. Um, and it's this, uh, a good way to think about it is honestly, bras are really good kind of contemporary touch point. Um, I hear from a lot of people, Oh, like bras are such terrible things to do to women. I have to set my boobs free from boob jail. And it's like, well, no people wear bras for lots of different reasons. Um, and there's this misconception that they are to cover your nipples or they are there to lift your boobs up and make them look sexy. And yes, some bras do that. And some people do wear bras for those purposes, but there are a lot of reasons Apart from that, I got to admit that nipple coverage never really comes up for me. I don't care. My concerns are more about lift and support. Emma, I am of boob, if you cannot tell, over Zoom. So very important to me personally. Um, uh, and in the same way that, yes, tight lacing, de- trying to get your waist super duper tiny is a thing. But so are like those like nine inch ballet fetish heel shoes, but those are not the only high heels in the world in the same way that a tight lacing corset is not the only corset in the world. So, um, the first slide says corsets are just bras, not tools of the patriarchy designed to oppress by men to oppress women. People have worn bras or bra-like garments for a very, very long time. We actually have um, some art from like ancient Greece of women athletes and acrobats who are essentially wearing a set of bra and knickers. Like it's a bandeau bra, like just kind of wrapped around their chest, but they're wearing like kind of full on underpants. Um, And we also, there's a very famously in the last decade, we have uncovered what looks like straight up a linen bra from like the 14th century or something. So um, that did kind of upend a lot of costume historian and um, particularly film costume studies people on their heads because we had this mindset of like, there were no bras until blah. And it's like, actually there definitely were Um, in some right. Some medieval writers called them breast bags, which is, the worst thing I've ever heard of. Oh my Pops God. Pops and Dugs. Yeah, take that away. <laughs> the worst thing I've ever heard of. And guess what? Men were big mad about them. Um, they they wrote lots of things about how they thought they were bad. And I'm just like, let ladies deal with their bodies. Oh my God. Anyway. Wait, what possible argument could a man have about a bra? Julie, they have control over their own bodies. It's camouflaging and disguising nature. And oh my God. Just, that old chestnut. It's covering up something that should be available. Mm. So the argument was that bras are a catfish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but we get the same thing now where it's like, oh, um, on the first date, you know, find a way to get a woman to wash all her makeup off because otherwise she's lying to you. Like, yeah. Just let us be. Exactly. False advertising. Yes. Mm. Anyway, so um, the first slide, everyone, on the PowerPoint. <laughs> oh God, look at this. I'm in heaven. Um, is a really interesting garment. I should have actually gone back and found a slightly earlier one. But this is a pair of stays um, that were originally made in the 1770s and then were later altered in the 1780s, either as the fashions were evolving or 
or to suit a new wearer who had a different body type. And so this is a really good jumping off point to start about what came before. Um, and so what came before, again, we have had some kind of corsetry pretty much as long as we've had tailoring, at least in Europe. Um, and so tailoring, we kind of start to think about coming about in like the middle ages and moving into the Renaissance. Um, and corsetry as a category just refers, I already said this in the Outlander costume episode, but for those of you who are new, refers to any garment that just shapes and, and, um, supports the body in some way. So corsets could do a lot of different things. Um, a lot of people wear them for back support. Uh, we think that a lot of people in the lower classes probably did have some kind of corsetry that they wore because they were doing pretty hard work. Um, and it helps to just kind of literally hold yourself up. Um, but prior to this point in time, so still well into Outlander territory, um, people would have been wearing stays and they would have shaped the body as a whole into what is almost uniform universally described across costume history resources as an inverted cone shape. So all of the museums I found described it that way. And so it's less about kind of recognizing uh, the anatomy of the body as it is making a specific shape. Um, and so corsets or stays, or sometimes they're called jumps. Um, the words are really used very interchangeably. And it's one of those regionalisms, actually, I found out is that English travelers who went to France were very surprised by what the French called corsets versus stays. And French travelers who came to England were very surprised by what the English called corsets versus stays. But um, generally, at this time period, we are kind of in like stays territory. Um, it could also be called a pair of bodies because sometimes they were in two halves that laced up the front and the back. So a pair. Um, and then also the boning that went in to support the garments would have been called stays as well. And actually in contemporary bras, sometimes it is still called stays. If you ever have a bra that has a little piece of boning under the arm, like a little plastic piece of boning, that's still called a stay. Um, to this day. And there are lots of different uh, things they could have been made of. In this time period, we're still largely looking at reeds. Um, a lot of Queen Elizabeth I dresses had stays that were just straight up wood or metal. Um, and some of that, speaking of the courtly dances, was actually to help with the courtly dances because there were a lot of lifts and the women were wearing really, really heavy dresses. Um, and you can see it a little bit in Shakespeare in Love. And I'm going to stand up a little bit again. Sorry, I know it's an auditory medium. <laughs> Um, the men to do a big lift would actually kind of get a grip on the underside of the women's um, garments because they were so heavily reinforced and they would be able to like yank and really get them up in the air, even though they were wearing these heavy jewel encrusted brocaded Yay! gowns. Yeah. That is wild. Isn't that cool? So um, we've moved away from wood and metal because that's... <laughs> uncomfortable, but there is still a little bit of a perception that the more straight laced, the more rigidly attired you are, the more proper and good you are. And if you were wearing something a little bit more relaxed, you were a little bit slovenly and possibly immoral. I can't. I was going to say slattern. I'm stuck on corsets or dance handles. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they weren't like reaching... Uh, you know, into someone's underwear. I actually don't have a strong enough understanding of the exact mechanics of how a Tudor gown was put together, but there was enough rigidity and reinforcement in the bodices of what the women were wearing that, yeah, they could just kind of like 
lift them up. But the same is true um, in like later 19th century dances when we do start having the technology available to create the narrower waists. It helps to lift because, and it's the same principle I understand. I never did partnering in ballet with partnering in ballet where if you've got to lift someone, you really want to get sort of in the squishy bits in the middle so that the rib cage is there Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. um, have a base to lift up under from is how I just explained it poorly. But anywho. I get it though. Thank you. Um, So these are really cool. These are stays. Um, And the little caption talks about how the museum, this is a picture from the V&A museum um, about how x-ray has revealed exactly how they were altered and um, how they were kind of cut down from the top. They were changed so that they used to lace in the back and now they lace in the front. Um, They were made a little bit shorter from the bottom. And uh, yeah, I just think this is really, really cool. We're starting to get in the time period where we're moving away from, if, again, if we use Outlander as a touchstone, what Claire is wearing when she comes back in time, the second time, um, we're moving away from that. The waist is starting to rise up to um, be a little bit higher. Um, but otherwise, this is still a little bit of an old-fashioned shape. And one of the things that's going to be cool, and I'm sorry for talking so much about a movie we haven't watched on the podcast yet, but what's really cool about the Joe Wright version being set in 1797 is, again, there's a really interesting storytelling choice. And Emma already talked about how we clearly have um, – uh, queen bitch costume designs for the <laughs> Bingley sisters. Um, you know, at the time period, they probably also would have been wearing the, the soft white nap dress uh, gowns because they were very en vogue. But from a costume telling point of view and a visual div- division point of view, um, we have these wonderful colors and feathered headdresses and things that visually distinguish them from the others. Um, the costume designer for Joe Wright's production, whose name I think is Jacqueline Durand or Duran. Yeah. Is that Emma? Yes. Yeah. She won for the Oscar for little women this year. Oh yes. Mm. Great job. Ooh, now I want to go and rewatch Little Women. And, and ooh, interesting. Okay. Um, she makes a really interesting storytelling choice where, okay, this is set in 1797. We are right on the transition mark from this older style of garment into the Regency high lifted bust nap dress time. So, Who wears what? And what I think is really interesting about how she plays with the storytelling is she has a really good understanding of the fact that just because something is set in a time period doesn't mean that the characters, if you freeze frame on any one of them, they are dressed exactly like what we think of as that time period because, of course, clothing was very expensive. So a lot of people were wearing the same thing for decades. And why might someone do that? Is it because they can't afford to update and adapt or get new textiles, you know, that are being imported from India in places? Are they still wearing their older sort of English linens? Um, Is it someone who's been very accustomed to 
being the ruler of all she surveys and why should she change just because fashion has changed. You'll see when we watch that movie that there's much more variety in terms of shape and silhouette. Whereas I do feel like, um, no shade to Andrew Davies, noted nemesis of Andrew Thompson. Um, I feel like in his, start a fight. in his production, it is a little bit, and some of it has to do with the fact in 1813, this new style had kind of baked and was a little bit more universal, but it is still every single person you look at is like, freeze frame, 1813. Um, and we're not seeing as much the kind of um, gooeyness and flexibility of time in That's that adaptation, which is really cool. So I like starting with this pair of stays because they show that these like rigid definitions of what was worn when is very fluid and flexible and changeable. And this is a great example of a garment that was adapted. Um, okay, cool. So these are stays that are from 1780 or 1789. It's still kind of what we think of as like older fashioned stays, um, a little bit more corset, like the waist is still low, but it's starting to creep up. And what's nice about this shape is it's starting there. There are more vertical bones in it and it's starting to kind of angle the bust forward. And so what we're about to get in Regency time is the bust lifting up. Um, and this is sort of, again, kind of a hybrid style between rigid court, sun king, all that jazz and into like, no, away with monarchies, only the neoclassical style. Um, this is also really interesting because it's a super fancy fabric for listeners at home. It's like this gorgeous raspberry silk damask weave. Like it's very, very beautiful. So this would have been something that an upper class character would have worn. Um, even though no one will ever see it, the wearer would know and could afford to splash out on something quite so fancy. It also laces in the back, so servants would have assisted with that. And the boning in this one is baleen, which is whalebone. And um, one thing to note about corsets is that, again, our modern understanding of corsetry and a lot of modern makers use steel because that's the technology that we have, um, steel corsets are, are relatively heavy. Um, a lot of people are doing cool things in modern corsetry to lighten them up, but my corsets that I have were mostly bought like five to six years ago. And there was still a really strong emphasis in the corsetry community on, um, support and sturdiness. So there's lots of layers of fabric and then there's the steel bones in there and they're a little bit heavy and they're very, very rigid. So that's kind of what we think of when it comes, comes to corsetry. Whalebone apparently was quite comfortable to wear. It's much lighter. Um, my friend Cora, who is the lingerie addict, um, attended a conference of corsetry in Oxford a few years ago and someone had an antique whalebone corset and it's so light you can balance it on one finger wow. it's very very light and it adapts to the heat and warmth of the body so there would have been a lot more flexibility to these garments than there would be later when people start wearing steel boned ones which i always have found really really interesting so again this idea of like the corset it's so oppressive actually they were probably pretty comfortable and they just held your boobs up anyway <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it was mostly just oppressive to the whales. Um, mm -hmm. which Allison, very, very true. It led to severe overfishing of whales, and they are still an endangered species large, for lots of reasons, but the corset trade definitely had a lot to do with it. Wow. So before you go to a different slide, what? so what would this do to your boobs? What direction? So they would go forward? 
At this, yes. So previously with the cone shape, it was your boobs would have been just kind of like pressed against your chest wall. And mm-hmm. we do get that like fabulous kind of Marie Antoinette cleavage. I think I think that the look that this is what Tom and Lorenzo call baby heads. Yes. Where it's like <laughs> squished. So they're like round cranial domes. A little squished. So yeah. picture Claire's wedding dress from Outlander. where they're just digging right on in. This is starting to change from that. So this is, they're still um, being kind of pressed against the body, but it's allowing them to open up a little bit more towards the front. Um, Some people call this like a prow of a ship uh, is what it was described as. Um, And we're, you know, the, the idea, basically the idea of modern bras still kind of comes from this is something that's holding around the body will help hold the breasts up. And so, um, what we see in a lot of corsetry is that hold starts at the waist. Um, so again, it wasn't as much a priority in like Elizabethan times. That was just like, make the body a shape. It's a cone. Bye. And now we're starting to get like active anatomical engagement. In other words, let's look at her boobs. Look at her boobs. Um, yeah. Cool. All right. Um, this is just another pair of stays, kind of similar time period. This one has even a shorter waistline. Um, I think there were shoulder straps. They've probably just been lost to time. This is another whalebone corset. And again, it's starting to kind of um, open up a little bit more. We still have the cone shape, but it's getting shorter and shorter and shorter. So that U shape there, that your bubes would be between the U. Exactly. Yes. Okay, cool. Can I ask a quick question? Um, uh-huh. Why whalebone specifically? Was it because that was the lightest and most pliable of the animal bones? Honestly, I just, that's a question that's like, who was the first person who made meringue and why? I just want to talk to him. I have a similar feeling about whalebone because they're using the baleen, which is like the whales, the tooth, the teeth that they would suck the things into. Who decided? Who killed a whale and thought, I'm going to save these for something? I'm sure it had something to do with somebody trying to find a way to sell more parts of a whale. I'm sure, unfortunately. Yes. Um, But they are, you know, um, they're... They're very slim. They're very flexible. They're very supportive. And uh, yeah, people couldn't get enough from them. Poor whales. So it is now an incredibly restricted um, material to send around the world. Like even people who are trying to, um, you know, someone has an antique whalebone corset and they're trying to get it to a museum. They run into incredible struggles with imports like customs people immediately will seize and destroy it because it's such a heavily banned substance. So the good news is people are trying to look out for the whales, but yeah. Oh, the other thing, actually, this picture is really helpful. So this is a pair of stays from the V&A museum from around 1780 to 1789. So we're still about a decade or two before Joe Wright's PP. Um, but I just want to point out that the uh, corsets or stays would have laced at this point with these little, they look like grommets, but of course they didn't have the metal presses because the industrial revolution hadn't happened yet. So these would have just been heavily reinforced like buttonhole stitches. Um, and that's another reason why if you see someone talking about, oh, my waist, I can't breathe, <clears throat> Pirates of the Caribbean, in this time period, 
we physically did not have the technology to tight lace down because if you tried to tight lace, you would just wear out those buttonholes um, because there's no reinforcement. So that's another soapbox for another day. Um, These I love. Is my little video covering them up? Let me move this. Okay. So this is a pair of stays from around 1790. And if you ask Keenan, this is what we might have seen on women in and around Longbourn, um, Netherfield Park, um, Pemberley, etc. in the Joe Wright version of Pride and Prejudice, which again is set in 1797. So this is a pair of what's called short stays, and they were really, really popular throughout the Regency. And the biggest innovations here that I want to talk about are this is the shortest waistline we've seen yet. It's very, very short. You can still see in the front that there is um, there's some kind of rigid support structure that runs kind of between the breasts down the sternum. This is called the busk, B-U-S-K, and modern corsets still have busks. Um, usually, if it's a front-fastening corset, it's where the, the fasteners are. But this would be um, something rigid that would provide support. So again, um, in the past, they might have been metal busks. We still have some wooden busk examples. Um, later, once Industrial Revolution had happened, they would be metal. Um, but they could also be removable so that you could really easily wash the short stays. Again, lingerie is related to things that you can wash. Um, and some of the busks were really beautiful, the removable ones. They would be, like, engraved or painted or carved. They that's might cool. have little, like, love messages on them. They were really kind of sweet. Ooh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so that's one innovation. On the picture where you can see that it laces up the back, there are these kind of little, like, padded, loopy things hanging down from the waist. These are like kind of mini bustles. And so when someone put on one of the diaphanous gowns, this would have helped the back to kind of billow and train away from the shoulders, which is, I found kind of cool. And uh, presumably also to help it when, when you are sweaty and it sticks to you. I want those in my normal clothing. Like that was when you started explaining this, I was like, oh, okay. So me, a person who sweats a lot, that would mean when I got up, it wouldn't just be like, that's, I want, I want those. I want those. I can't believe how much the front of this just looks like a bra. The back of it looks like a flak jacket. Like, yeah, like a bulletproof vest. I'm getting a Titanic, um, like life jackets. Yes. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it is sewed to last. Like you can see all the little stitching and like it's how each specific area is outlined. That's that's built for use. Yeah. And it's all it's all reinforced. And I was a little annoyed with the VNA because they just said on this um, photo that it has boning in it, and I was like, but what kind? <laughs> what kind? Um, but uh, a lot of these like channels and cording and all of the extra stitches. And I talk about this when I yell at people about bras. Um, but. Uh, A seamless bra will never give you as much support as a seamed bra because seams are sturdy and provide structure. It all comes from corsets. It's all interrelated. It's so cool. Okay, so this is the biggest thing that we start to see in the Regency time period that is going to be a huge shift from time Jane Austen was written, or time Pride and Prejudice was written, to time Pride and Prejudice was published, is for the very first time, instead of having the body all as one shape, we are starting to have support for individual breasts. Because people yeah, have... I was going to say, this is the separate part of lift and separate. This is where it happens. Yeah. And yeah. Um, one thing that 
would look a, a lot of things that costume designers do, especially with period films, is they do make adaptive choices either to avoid distracting contemporary audiences or um, that would just kind of like seem weird to contemporary audiences. And one of them is actually what we fondly refer to as the Elevenses. Um, Jane and Lizzie uh, just look spectacular. Everything is high and it's a little bit together. And I don't know if you can picture putting one of these on your body. They would not be together. It was a lift. And as Julie says, a separate. So if we went back in time and we saw someone wearing one of these, it would probably look a little bit weird to our eyes because I like a bra that will lift and center the ladies. But if I were out and about in one of these dresses, they might be kind of veering east and west and (laughs) might look a little weird. Um, So this is some, a garment that someone maybe like a Caroline Bingley would have worn someone who was like, especially if it was made in 1790 on the dot, we're still transitioning, but this is like the latest and greatest. Also notice that the cups of the stays such as they are, I'm making air quotes for those at home, um, are very low cut. Nipple coverage is not a big thing until like the mid 20th century, honestly, because we were wearing so many pieces of underwear that again, the focus of a lot of these garments is support and lift from the bottom. We're just not as concerned about like, ah, bra, cover your nips. Um, so what would, and also sh- they would have worn shifts under their stays. They would never yeah. would have worn a corset or stays against bare skin. Um, so the shift would have helped provide some support to the top of the breast tissue and some support to the nipple. It just never really crossed anyone's minds that they would need to like, Oh no, my undergarment doesn't cover my nipples. It just was not a big deal. So that's kind of fun. So there was no uh, kind of Janet Jackson moments that would not have happened. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So these are a pair of stays that are like firmly in Andrew Davies' time period, uh, 1800 to 1815. And these look really different from the ones we just saw. And so I put these in here um, to have a jumping off point to talk about the fact that, like, there is no one way to Regency. There is no one way to corset. People did lots of different things depending on their station in life, depending on their body shape and type. Were they did they need to work all day? Were they going to a ball? Were they traveling in the same way that I have lots of different bras for lots of different occasions in quarantine time. It is all sports bras all the time, baby. But in real life, it's almost always underwire bras, almost always. And then I have some fancies for fancy times. Um, and we kind of have the same thing in the past. Like there, there's just, uh, you know, I, in my Explorer page on Instagram, I get a lot of like film costume enthusiasts and costume history, history enthusiasts pointing out inaccuracies in film. And one of the things that I've noticed lately is people who are insistent that at a certain time period, dresses would only have laced up the front or only have laced up the back and corsets would have only laced up the front and only laced up the back. And no one had side parted hairstyles until the 1920s. And I'm just like, I don't, I think that's a failure of imagination pals. Like yeah. I just, people, let leave people alone, but yeah, also people live their life. Live. <laughs> um, but also if I could just soapbox briefly about hairstyles, um, one things that I think, Emma, I'm sorry, who's the costume designer for Andrew Davies? Uh, it is um, Dinah Collin. Yes. 
Um, I read a great interview with her where she provided her reference sources for Lydia's hairstyles. Because I don't know if you all noticed, but they are wacky. They're like so off kilter and kind of like daffy and a little bit. They're very asymmetrical. So people who are like only side, only center parts for most of history. I'm just like, no, it's not true. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's just, it is frustrating when people nitpick and stuff because it's like, like I said earlier, it's not this isn't a documentary. This is an interpretation. And yeah, you want to see things that are reminiscent, but this is why I like stuff like, I mean, I haven't seen the new Emma, um, but the costumes in that look incredible. The costumes they are in amazing. Bridgerton, which is coming out next month, also yeah. look incredible. And you've got to play with these things. You can't just be textbook or like museum quality because like you said, it might not have even been like that. We just have this specific vision because of like, plates and things and the existing ones that have been left. Yeah. And, um, like we, we also have to think about kind of what we know about the past. Like if someone were to only try to figure out what I wore on a daily basis based on Vogue, based on Instagram and based on maybe my professional headshots, they would not have a correct, uh, a correct impression of what I wore on a day-to-day basis. You mean they're not going to go right to Peloton sweatsuit? (laughs) (laughs) I love my Peloton sweatsuit. I'm so warm and soft. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so like I vividly remember when high-waist skinny jeans started to come back in like 2006, 2007 when I was leaving college. And I have been wearing them ever since. In many cases, the same pair. Um, And denim trends have come and gone. And so if someone was, again, to like freeze frame on what fashion people said was the style of 2013 or the style of 2020, Keenan's not wearing them. She's wearing the same high-waist full length, not none of this ankle length. I'm too tall for that. Full length denim. Um, and the same goes with our underwear. So end rant. The slide we're looking at is a pair of 1800 to 1815 stays. So rock solid in Jane Austen territory. They're English. They're from the V&A Museum. Um, they're made out of linen. Again, it just says boning. And I'm like, but what kind? Um, but this one looks really different from the last pair. There's way fewer seams and pieces of construction. Um, it laces in the front instead of in the back. So there's no busk. Um, and there's no those really dramatic bra-like cups that we saw are not in evidence here. And there's not really anything to draw because this is just too, there's no sort of inference we can draw because these are just two garments. It probably just tells us that we had two different people who liked two different things. Um, so that's another thing that I like to remind people about the past. People could do and shape their body however they want, just like we, like I don't wear Spanx ever. And somebody might assume that everyone in 2015 wore Spanx every day. No, I don't like them. They're garbage. Um, and uh, people in the past could make their own elective choices about their bodies as well. Although men would still comment on them. <laughs> the thing that's wild to me about that one is it looks like you could walk into an Urban Outfitters today and buy this as like a crop top that you would wear with extremely thready jean shorts and like roller skates, right? On Instagram. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's, it's very f- free people. Like it looks... It, like it really looks like something that people would wear now and then i would like laugh about it i mean 
not kindly, but I, well, and also probably they would just look fabulous. So then some like tiny mean part of my brain would be envying their abs and like turning it into mean jokes. But it's very like it looks like something somebody would wear today just as clothing. It really does. Mm-hmm. I can see this on a Hadid sister or one of the Jennas for sure. Yes. Like hundred <laughs> percent. Totally. <laughs> Um, and then I love these. I'm obsessed with these. So this is a um, corset or stays from around 1800 to 1820. Um, it's from a museum in Utrecht. And they're cotton. And helpfully, they tell me that there's metal boning in there, which is kind of cool. So we've metal boning for the first time. Suck it, VA. Yes. Suck Come it, on, VNA. Get together. Get your stuff together. Um, we have over the shoulder straps, we have separate bust cups. So this would have been the high and separated effect. Um, for, but what's really cool, guys, there's no lacing. This oh, is yeah. a pair of stays that wrapped. Oh, oh, I does see. it tie? It ties around mm-hmm. in the back. So you'd put your arms Whoa. through the front, like you're putting on an apron or a pinafore. You'd cross the ties around your back. You'd bring them around the front to your waist and you'd tie them there. But that's how our caftan ties. Yes, exactly. Like how our caftan ties. Wow. Great touchstone, Allison. Um, and I am fascinated by these. I love these. Um, these have a slightly longer waist than I've seen from some other garments. So there were also kind of shorter waisted ones that we really think, Jane Austen time, high waist, high waist, high waist. There were some of those too. But I do also want to point out that even though we had short stays and they're kind of the defining undergarment of the period, people like Jane and Lizzie would also have worn full length stays as well. Again, it was a personal preference thing. They would not have been focused on nipping in the waist or defining the waist. They just would have been fuller length more support, more structure. Um, I I read a lot yesterday, um, so I can't remember exactly which class wore which, but apparently there was a, kind of a little bit of a noticeable distinction between women who worked all day tended to wear, I think, the longer length ones, again, more support, and women who did not have to work all day probably wore more of the shorter ones, but we see both in this time period. Um, but I really love these because again, there's this idea of every, every woman in the Regency was a Jane or a Lizzie. They all had servants or sisters to help them get dressed. Their corsets had to lace up the back. They had to do this. And again, this is a great example of like, no, people could do whatever they do. This would be really easy to put on by yourself. Because there's no lacing. You don't have to untie things. You just wrap it and then you can stitch it in the front and you kind of position yourself in the top of the cups and off you go. This one is very interesting because this one makes me think that maybe some woman was just like, what, how can I make this for myself? What, what can I do? Because it looks like somebody could just make this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Honestly, wood wear. I really like it. Mm-hmm. Um And then this is a corset from the Met Museum um, from around 1805 to 1810. It's not in great shape, so it's not on a mannequin, so we we don't get as much of a sense of what it would have looked like on the body. Um, The Met, somehow it comes off a little snottily. They note it's probably French. (laughs) (laughs) Which just really makes me laugh. But this would have been... Uh, in my humble opinion, very much a Caroline Bingley or Mrs. Hurst style corset of the period. This looks like a straight up bra. It's super high waisted. Um, it has very delicate chiffon looking like bra cups. There's a drawstring along the top that would allow people to cinch it so that the fabric would kind of hold against the top of the bust. But it's 
beautiful and luxurious and delicate. And it looks like a, a straight up crop top or a bra. Like there's no evidence of a corset in sight. So I thought that one was kind of cool. It's probably French. Um, it's a problem. And then this is just another one. Um, this is an example of what longer stays from 1811 would have looked like. This is from the Met Museum. I have to imagine that this kind of um, button placket at the top, on top of the busk, you would undo the button, lift the little flap up, and that's where you could untie the drawstring that went along the top of the cups and where you could remove the busks for cleaning. So Yeah, I, it's it see, that seems like a useful innovation in that it sort of hides the thing that somebody in a romance novel would definitely untie right before they're old. I'm reading the Bridgerton series right now. Um, <laughs> someone would definitely untie in a garden right before uh, an older brother storms in to demand um, satisfaction for. Uh, I'm for pulling the, you out, sir. Right, totally. You gotta you gotta hide that, or some dastardly duke is definitely gonna pull on it, and and then oh everything mm-hmm. comes tumbling out. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> My boobs. Okay. Um, And then this is, as we move out of the Regency, the waists start to get uh, a little bit lower and a little bit more defined. We still kind of have the cups at the top, but this is going to move us out of the Regency time period, more into mid-century, where we start to get... um, This is a little bit getting into, I think, Jane Eyre territory, um, where you start to get... Waists that are not super low, they're not at the navel, but they are a little bit more under the rib cage, and the skirts start to get fuller. And as your skirts get fuller and heavier before the invention of the crinoline, you need a defined waist to help hold them up. Otherwise, they'll dig into your hips and it'll hurt. So this is just an example of a later corset. I also thought all of the quilting and cording on it was really pretty. Yeah, it's so pretty. Yeah, this one's beautiful. But it also has that flak jacket thing to it. (laughs) Well, so... This helps give a lot of support. Like I have one sports bra that's incredibly aggressive that kind of looks like this on the back and it covers a lot of my back instead of just being a band that goes around. You get a lot more support that way. And a lot of their dresses were cut with the sleeves set very, very far back. And so you kind of had to keep your shoulders like super back, like a ballerina, where your shoulder blades are kind of pulling together. So I think the way the garments, the undergarments were shaped helped just like hold you in that position. Yeah. Um, Okay. So uh, a lot of people wanted to know in the Slack how everybody got dressed. So this is uh, a Regency dressing sequence, but specifically for someone like a Lizzie or a Jane Bennett, maybe not, maybe a servant, maybe not a servant, depending on what kind of household they were in. But first layer is your shift or Allison, will you pronounce it for me? Shaft. Your shaft. Um, it would have been linen, cotton, or muslin. Maybe for a special occasion like a wedding, it might have been silk, but it would have been, um, again, a textile that could have been easily laundered. Um, obviously, hygiene is a little dicey before the invention of modern plumbing. Um, but I will say that even though people themselves didn't bathe as much as we would like to see, they actually did clean their undergarments pretty regularly. So um, these ladies might have had many, many shifts. And so they'd wear a fresh one every day. Um, Darcy might even have changed his shirt, you know, between daytime activities and evening activities. So the layer that was it's next... It's five o'clock, Lemon. I'm not a monster. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. What am I, a farmer? Yeah, um, I am a farmer. Uh, so yeah, so 
Well, I would personally prefer to see more showers. Um, the garments themselves would be, have been cleaner. So, um, they would not have been like full length to the floor. They might have ended kind of around T length or mid calf. Um, but this would have been the garment that was closest to the skin. It could have had different sleeve lengths depending on the time of year or the type of dress gown that was being worn over it. Um, and then for some reason later in the century, uh, people decided that the word shift was like vulgar. So they started saying chemise after the French, um, which I just find funny. Uh, okay. Okay, so a lot of people have asked about like underwear underwear. And what's super interesting about the history of women's underwear is that um, it was very, very, very immodest for women to wear any for a very long time, which is bonkers to our modern way of thinking. But it wasn't until around the 1920s that there was a very noticeable and dynamic shift from proper ladies wear open crotch garments to proper ladies wear closed crotch garments. And the reason is that only men wore closed and divided garments like trousers. Women couldn't do that. What are they trying to be like men that's improper and immodest and ungodly? So if women were wearing pantalettes, which they did start to wear later in the 19th century as skirts got bigger and crinolines came in and it got a little drafty down there, um, they would have been like two separate legs that just like chaps. Yeah, kind of that had like ribbon threaded through the waistband connecting the two, but wide open and breezy. I'm picturing a lot of like 2007 era kind of Britney, Paris, and Lindsay moments <laughs> getting out of that carriage. The Pats being yeah. uh that's so crazy. It's it's really it's really bonkers. But um in a related question, and I know that this may have been a question on the Slack and definitely a question that I have had. A woman at this time walking around in her pantalettes. What if she's outside in the park, just visiting people, and then all of a sudden has to piss? Oh, don't worry. We'll get there. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I just had to make sure we're going. No, there. there's a slide with, with the drunk slack questions. Oh, I, yeah, because I have a period question. I also have many period questions. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So you do your shift, maybe pantalets. Probably not quite yet. Um, they don't start to get widespread until about 1815. Um, but for, you know, for warmth and stuff, maybe. Um, then you would put on your stockings and garters and you'd put on your shoes because it's really easy. If you don't have a servant kind of placing every garment on you, it's easy to put your uh, shoes and stockings on before everything else because otherwise it's just too many layers. Um, so stockings at this time would have come up above the knee and they would have tied with a garter below the knee. Um, we don't yet have the like, oh, I'm lifting up my hemline. You can see my garter strap. We don't have that yet. It wasn't invented. Um, so I think there's a still from Pride and Prejudice and Zombies where Lily James is like pulling a dagger out of her thigh high stockings that are hooked to a garter belt. And I'm like, all right, I am going to be a little bit of a crank about that one. Um <laughs> So you do your shoes and stockings, um, and then you would put your corset or stays over your shift. If you had taken the busk out for cleaning, you'd then put the busk back in. You'd get yourself all situated, um, and then you'd pull a petticoat on over your head. And this would have been not like a half slip. This would have been full length because it would have helped to cover up the um, like boning and the basically the texture of the stays, um, and it would have like 
tied around the high waist with a drawstring. Um, and it provides another layer underneath your gown because gowns could get very sheer with this neoclassical romantic style. Um, if it's in the morning time, you might also put on a chemisette. And we see that mostly in Andrew Davies PP on Mary, but sometimes also on Lydia and Kitty. In fact, I think, oh, and Mrs. Bennett wears them a lot. I think in the, oh, I want to go to Brighton scene, uh, Lydia is wearing a chemisette and it, it's like a dicky almost. So mm-hmm. it's got, it's very thin and it's got a high collar, but it only fastens right under the bust. So it right at that high waist, that's as far down as it comes. I like that that's specifically to be worn in the morning as well, because some yeah. of the criticisms I saw about the historical accuracy was the people who weren't wearing them. Mm-hmm. And it was like, they would have been wearing them and it's like, I mean, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, I will say funny, like you can't have tits until the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Still true. Still true. Emma, the best. That was the perfect. <laughs> yes. You're no tits before four o'clock before 11. No tits before 11. That's why they call them 11s. It's a full circle. Okay. And then you pull your gown on, um, uh, a lot of gowns just for versatility. And this was a thing that happened well into modern times might, if they had short sleeves, have removable long sleeves so you could wear them year round. Um, if you just have a pretty lacy thing you want to show off, they're called fichus. They're the little thin lacy scarves that would go around the neck. Claire wears them on Outlander. Doesn't Charlotte Lucas wear one of those? I think Jane wears one at one point. Um, And again, it might be to cover the tits because it's the morning. Um, Or it could have just been decorative. Um, And then one thing that a lot of costume designers elect to leave out when they're dressing Regency ladies for the movies is a cap. Um, It might have been for warmth. It might have been, guys... It's a it's a hair in an elastic bun day today because I don't feel like blow drying it kind of situation. So they would not have had the perfect, beautiful curls every single day. They might have just been bored. So a lot of younger unmarried, a lot more younger unmarried women were wearing caps than we kind of culturally imagine. So that's a dressing sequence for Lizzie or Jane. I'm going to start to try to zip through because I want to get to the drunk slack questions. Um, Mr. Darcy would have as had Julie's favorite garment in the world. Choney shirt. His long shirt. Um, (laughs) He would have slept in something that was slightly longer than this. Honestly, he kind of has a bisexual pirate uh, night shirt as well. I will accept nothing less. Yeah. So good for him. Um, But so he put on his nice linen shirt. Uh, He might change it frequently throughout the day because he's a gentleman and it must always stay clean and crisp and white. Um, You know, the more kind of like they might have had frills around the cuffs because working men couldn't keep their shirts clean, but gentlemen could and they wanted to show them off. Um, Men were just beginning to wear... Uh, long trousers. So we see that during the day on Darcy and Bingley. They are very up to the minute with their long trousers on during the day. Um, some men were starting to wear drawers, if that is at all assuring to you, Julie, um, instead of the shirts. But a lot of them were just wearing the shirts and just tucking everything around. Um, they also would have worn stockings that tied with a garter. Uh, Some men did wear corsets or something similar for a really slim silhouette, particularly around the waist. Um, Men who were wearing drawers might have had 
drawers that had a really, really tall waistband and actually had kind of lacing that looked like a corset that they could tighten to kind of trim up the waistline a little bit. This um, is blowing my mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, speaking of Mr. Darcy and his calves, if a gentleman was getting ready to go out in the evening and was putting on the silk breeches that stopped below the knee and then only had his silk stockings on view, he might have padded his calves to turn a more elegant foot on the dance floor. So oh my God, I love it so for much. every man who's like padded bras. I'm like, fuck you. Um, <laughs> so yes, gentlemen took as much advantage of all of the shaping abilities of undergarments as women did. Um, so yeah, uh, silk breeches for men, it was worn to court and evening wear as the century progressed and gentlemen stopped wearing breeches, it would have been liveried servants who wore them, particularly footmen. Um, and you'll also see older men wearing breeches um, throughout the day, not just in the evening. Um, and then they would have put on their boots, or if it was in the evening, they would have put on pumps of some kind, a cravat, a waistcoat, and then the other coat, and then possibly also an overcoat, depending on the weather. So that's how Mr. Darcy gets dressed. Okay, drunk snack questions. I'm going to try to go really fast. Uh, menstrual hygiene. If someone could please write a book about this, I would pay them $100. <laughs> I'm so interested to know about menstrual hygiene throughout history, around the world. We, I kind of have some idea of what various peoples did. We don't know a lot, um, especially in this time period when we had so many nap dresses. There wasn't as much to cover up what might be happening underneath. So at some point later in the 19th century, um, I know, especially as we get very late in the 19th century, some women would essentially have like rubber underpants um, or like a rubber shield so that if they sat down, the blood would not go onto their garments. They might wear red quilted petticoats um, during their time of the month. And then they would take period underwear, period underwear, Julie. Exactly. Nice. What we, what I roughly understand to have been going on in the Regency is two things. Um, one is essentially uh, a proto sanitary belt and sanitary napkins, where you would just make a bundle of fabric and you'd place it against your private parts, and you would support it with a tie around your waist. So swaddling, basically. Um, a little bit of a diaper stitch. And then we do have records mostly from a little bit later in the century, but you got to imagine it was happening earlier too of kind of proto tampons. Um, and modern me is looking back at the past being like, please be careful about what you put up there. Please, 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 please be careful. Um, just sanitize, boil the stuff first. Um, so like linen, uh, tampons. They were very conscious of putting strings on so that you could get them out and stuff. Um, there was some description of like some kind of really absorbent fiber fiber that they would put in a bag and put up there. And again, with our knowledge of toxic shock, toxic shock syndrome, I'm just like, please be careful. But we don't know enough. I would like to know more. I don't know how women lived for so long. Like I look at this stuff and I'm like, what? Why? I mean, obviously they were dying just like men were back then. But like, yeah. <laughs> All right. The question: How did they pee? Um, Let's go. Lifted their skirts and did their business. Sweet. Yep. Um, we did not have any water closets. We had chamber pots. So if you were inside, you would go use the chamber pot. And if you were so fortunate as to have a servant, the servant would 
take it away and you could preserve your aura of beautiful womanly innocence and godliness and no one else needed to worry about it. If you were out and about, if you were at a ball, if you were at the, um, what is it? the spa and bath or whatever. Um, there was, uh, a thing called a bordaloo, which honestly looks like a gravy boat and it could have been made out of porcelain. There are some examples in museums that are like fancy Sevres porcelain or like silver with an engraved crest on it. Um, and it looks like a, like a gravy boat. Um, again, I'm doing hand gestures for this auditory medium that kind of like dipped down in the middle so that you could put it, it would fit against your anatomy and you would go to a dark corner. Your maid would bring you the bordaloo. You'd pop a squat and she would take it away. And they had little lids and you'd go to like a dark closet. Or if you were at a theater, you'd go to the back of the box and, um, mm -hmm. wow. Yeah. Very quickly went out of style when, uh, water closets came into existence for obvious reasons, but yeah, you would just, Pee in a gravy boat. You just pee in a gravy <laughs> boat. Mm -hmm. um, next question. What did children wear? Were there Regency training bras? Um, children under the age of like seven or eight weren't all throughout history have not always been considered fully human. So uh, why would we distinguish their genders until they're real people? So a lot of um, young boys and girls dressed very similarly. They might have worn pantalettes, but stockings, shifts, some kind of little like over petticoat thing. A lot of them to our contemporary eyes, everybody dressed like a little girl, basically. And then at a certain point, um, sometimes as young as two, but usually around the age of seven or eight, boys would have been breeched or breached and they would have started wearing the short pants, the, the breeches. Um, but girls were essentially tiny adults. And so they wore tiny adult clothes. Um, I don't know that people were super focused on children's stays. They probably didn't start wearing stays until like contemporary humans, um, until they kind of wanted the shape and support. We don't really start wearing bras until we kind of either need or want to. Um, so that's that, uh, difference between stays and, Oh, when did they switch from reeds to bones and corsets? Um, they were used, uh, simultaneously for a very, very long time. It, uh, depended on your, class and your preferences, um, reeds would have been more prone to breaking, but they also would have been a little bit lighter and softer. Um, whalebone, as I discussed, was actually a pretty awesome thing to have in your corsets, but I think it might've been a little bit more expensive. So probably just dependent. Some people supported their stays or corsets with just cording. So they'd get cord and run it through the boning channels just for any kind of little stiffener. Um, I think some people even use paper. So it just kind of depends on your status, your station, what you feel like doing, what were undergarments like for the lower classes. Again, probably pretty similar. We have a little bit of preservation bias with what we know about garments from the past because what tends to get preserved is the super fancy Marie Antoinette stuff, um, stuff that people wore for weddings and then never wore again, um, stuff that might have been really beautiful, but the person was still growing and so they didn't wear it for very long and it didn't get worn out, which means that for people who were more impoverished or were working people, they tended to rewear, remake, reuse until it could not be clothing anymore. And then it became wash rags and then it became diapers. And then it, like, it, we just don't have a ton of it anymore. But our understanding is that probably relatively similar undergarments, they wouldn't have been silk. They might've been harsher textiles. Um, the 
fashions might not have updated as quickly as they did for the upper classes, but our understanding is that they were probably pretty similar. And then did corsets at this time period lace in the back or the front? As we have seen, do whatever you want. Sometimes they lace in the front, sometimes the back, sometimes they wrap around. And then there's one more really, really good set of questions that came from Monica. Um, and they have to do with, obviously, um, if we were thinking about cis-heteronormative, we think of Pride and Prejudice. Um, but obviously, there are lots of different there have been different kinds of people who lived throughout history, throughout all time. Uh, trans and gender queer people were not invented in the 21st century. And so the questions were, what do we know about gender queering or transing lingerie in this period? Um, and then also, we know that Mali culture included people who were assigned male at birth and dressed in feminine clothing, often taking on feminine names. They were definitely doing something genderqueer or what we would think of as genderqueer. So what corsetry or lingerie resources might they have used to shape their body in a more classically feminine way? And I told Monica that I was going to try to I wouldn't be able to t cover this very well because it's not my area of expertise, but I wanted to. And I said I would find some scholarly resources and I couldn't which is a real bummer. And I hope someone does um, do a deep dive on gender queering Regency or 19th century lingerie, because I would devour it. I think it would be really interesting. Um, but what I can say is as we kind of talked with respect to people who lived lives in more rigidly prescribed gender roles, like Mr. Darcy, like Elizabeth Bennett, they were using lingerie to shape their bodies in a way that they desired. Um, I think when you're talking about um, a time when all clothing is handmade to specific individual bodies, there might actually have been even more leeway for someone who wanted to change or adapt and use their undergarments to do that. And so my hope is that people who lived uh, genderqueer lives in the past um, had resources to do so. Um, I think a question came up, you know, what would someone like Ann Lister uh, have used to bind? And I just couldn't find anything. I don't know. She might have um, adapted stays or a corset to give a more um, uh, a silhouette that held the breast closer against the body instead of up and out. Um, you know, she might have just wrapped linen cloths. We just don't know. And I, I wish we knew more because I think it's such a cool and good and important question. And again, our impression of Regency is so colored by pop culture. It's so colored by what our costume designers are doing. And that's why I kind of like to see a costume designer like um, Jacqueline Durand, who worked with Joe Wright, really playing and kind of pushing the bounds of what we think of as the right or rigid way to do it, because I think it just helps to further open our eyes um, to the idea that people in the past were just as flexible and playful and creative and adaptive with their clothing as we are today. That may be the first thing that anyone said about this other PP that I have not seen yet that makes me excited about it. Same. Like that's, I love it when costume designers do that, because like you said, we do wear the stuff that we wore 10 years ago today still. So that's really rad. Oh, and then um, when we put this up, there's just some additional resources for people who are interested in lingerie. The Underpinnings Museum is an online museum that has gorgeous high-res photos of some incredible contemporary and historical garments. v &A Museum has a great collection. Met Museum's collection is okay. Uh, foundation. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's hard. Um, the Kyoto Costume Institute tends to have like incredibly opulent, stunning, amazing higher class ensembles that have been preserved, but just for eye candy. Some 
great gowns, beautiful gowns. Um, Foundations Revealed is a resource for people who are interested in becoming makers. So if you're someone who wants to make corsets and learn about how to adapt time periods and things like that, it is a members-only website, so it requires a subscription, and I am not a maker, so I've never joined. But huge, like all of the modern contemporary corsetry resources – boom, are at Foundations Revealed. If you would like to get a corset for yourself, um, if you would like to do any sort of body modification with your corset, if you're looking for a corset to support health needs, uh, if you're looking for an elaborate corseted wedding gown, Dark Garden in San Francisco is a, they're probably the best uh, contemporary American um, uh, corseteers out there. They work with Dita Von Teese a lot. A lot of her corsets are dark garden patterns. And then for books, I recommend In Intimate Detail by Cora Harrington. It's a wonderful, uh, if you're new to lingerie, you want a deeper dive on lingerie. It's very contemporary. It's got these beautiful watercolor illustrations in it. Great, great, great book. And then if you want to do a little bit more scholarly dive on lingerie, I can't recommend An Intimate Affair, Women, Lingerie, and Sexuality highly enough. In particular, there's a chapter on black lingerie and mourning and misogyny and racism that blew my mind. Very, very interesting chapter. Um, I have not read this book in a couple of years. So, of course, we are always sort of modifying and adapting the way we think and talk about different kinds of peoples. I can't remember if there's anything that seems out of date or might seem weird in that. But I remember that book being just a truly fascinating read. And um, she talks a lot about the open crotch garment situation. And that's where I first heard the word breast bags. And it made me so sad. (laughs) I'm still sad about it. I'm sorry about it, guys. Anyway, that's Regency Lingerie. Wow! Yay! What a presentation! Um, we have gone a little bit over time and I'm so delighted by it. Uh, so I'm going to wait and do all of our, like, read the list of patrons, do the social media stuff, um, later so that, so that Keenan and Emma can go about their days. Um, <laughs> Julie and I can go watch Lawrence Olivier and Greg Garson, <laughs> um, cause that's what we're doing this morning. Um, uh, I, I doubt we're going to see any breast bags. No, no breast bags. Um, before we do that though, um, Keen and Emma, do you have anything else that you want to share before I ask you if you want to plug things? Is there other other stuff, other thoughts? Do you have questions for each other? Do you have observate anything, anything? Anything? I just I'm such a simple bitch. I love all this Jane Austen stuff. <laughs> I now love it. Like I, I like as I'm getting older, the stuff that I was a little bit like dismissive of as a teenager that I'm now open like like, when you slid into my dms and you were like would you like to do this and i was like shit i haven't seen it (laughs) like that was my first thought was like i was like i really want to do this but i haven't seen it i was like but i can definitely watch it so like it was just cool to have this opportunity to actually address something a big like hole in my viewing oh well i'm really glad that it was useful and not a pain in the ass no so Uh, i'm like i love this research stuff i love going down a hole and finding out everything and i sounded so dismissive about historical accuracy accuracy and whilst i think it is important i i do think if you are looking at costume it should be joyous and i think that's probably why i like contemporary maybe a bit more sometimes is because it has less like people being really specifically nitpicky um so this is cool and and it's weird because Costume is like, this is going to be a name drop, sorry. So <laughs> I interviewed as part of a roundtable Amy Roberts, who costume designed The Crown a couple of weeks ago. Mm. And she got asked. That was a good name drop. 
the article is on l if anyone wants to read it um and uh someone asked like oh do you prefer doing contemporary or period and her answer was she preferred doing period because the creatives on set are less they get less involved in the like nitty-gritty because they're like right you know what you're doing that's great but then i realized that afterwards when it airs you must get way more people who are like this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong whereas if something set like in 2020 you're like cool that's what we were so it's, mm-hmm. it's just fascinating that from a, like the different sides of the coin um yeah so I, I just love all this stuff so thank you uh emma if if we haven't scared you off at some point i would love it if you would come back and we could just talk about costumes in general because now like now i just want to be like can we talk about can we talk about the costume design in the florida project like i want to talk about call me by your name i want to talk about hell i want to talk about dash and lily i'm very high on the dash and lily costume design right now me too. It's so like, good. Yeah, contemporary is great. And I think half the time people think that it's just shopping and it's just finding something that's cool. But again, there's such a language to it. It's just as thought about, maybe even more so than like period, because period it is like there's a certain expectation that it's going to look like pictures. Mm-hmm. Whereas contemporary, you are having to think of like the nitty But they're both great. And I love all costume designers. So uh, <laughs> anyone who's doing the work and bringing these beautiful garments that we can then like want to wear ourselves. And that's the other thing actually about fashion in general is it's very cyclical. So obviously you had Dior referencing like 17th, 18th century stuff who then like gets referenced 40 years later. So it's kind of like, there's always, it's self-referential in every way. So it can be wrong, I guess, technically, but not at the same time because we're always looking back and forward. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing I'm, lots of hand gestures. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the one downside of doing the Zoom as we all end up um, doing some visual storytelling. Um, I'm going to save all of, with one exception, all of those questions for another time and hope that you will come back on. But the one thing that I just have to ask you is if, if you um, were, I don't know, gun to your head, forced to say the best living costume designer in the world, who is it? Oh, wow. Um, guns my head. Or maybe your favorite. Oh, my favorite. Okay. Well, Sandy Powell's a big one. She, it's quite an obvious choice to say Sandy Powell um, because, like, she is incredible. She's done all the Scorsese stuff. Mm-hmm. She's been nominated for the most Oscars, like, since Edith had. I think she's won, like, three or four now. Um, she did Carol. Um, she did Cinderella. She got nominated for the same year for Cinderella and Carol, which is kind of insane. That Cinderella costume design is so good. Um, yeah, so she's amazing. Um, it's one that, you, you know, when you get asked this stuff and you're like drawing blank, drawing blank. Um, Deborah uh, Hansen, who did the Schitt's Creek costume design, she also did Orphan <laughs> Black. And oh, I didn't know that. That rules. Yeah, she did season two onwards for Orphan Black. Um, so the fact that she did all those characters and then did all the seasons of Schitt's Creek, which is like, you just look at that final costume that Moira wore, like the, <laughs> the, the priest, uh, Pope look like mm-hmm. just, I, so for TV, I'd probably say her at the moment, but there's, I have a lot and that was really upsetting. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll have to, we'll get into it more another time. Yeah. Just like, love that. there's just so many. And I think what's great now is that they are being celebrated and, my big bug is if anyone ever writes about costumes and they don't mention the costume designer, it's so fucking rude because yes. it's not like they just 
picked up a hanger. Like I remember reading something about the um, handsmaid tail costumes and how important they were politically. And it didn't mention Anne Crabtree's name. And it's like, she's the one who brought this to life. You fuckers. <laughs> like, <laughs> so yeah, always mention the costume designer is my, uh, <laughs> Good advice. That's a really good soapbox. I feel that mm-hmm. way about casting directors when people talk about how good an ensemble is and then they just like don't acknowledge casting. That's my that's my little favorite nitpick. But I love um, the underwear stuff. Um so yeah, this is like I, I wrote down those book names. I, I don't know if anyone noticed, but I was literally just like <laughs> writing down the book names. I can second Cora's book. I re- I own that one too. I really love it. Um before we go, uh Keenan, where can folks find you on social media and, and where can they read about um the bra stuff and the many robes? You can find the bra stuff which since the pandemic has shifted into all caftans and robes all the time, baby at sweetnothingsnyc.com I do have a lot of experience with bra fitting Um, it's mostly focused on D cups and up because that's my genre Um, but I do sort of general lingerie stuff as well I'm on twitter at sweetnothingnyc.com or no at (laughs) sweetnothingnyc it's twitter guys Um, and also instagram and to a vastly decreasing degree facebook Great. Emma, what about you? Um, well, all my social media handles, well, like Instagram and Twitter are at Frasbelina. Um, so you can find me there talking about all this stuff, basically. And then I freelance uh, for a variety of publications, um, most often Sci-Fi Fangirls, but also Al.com, Vulture, I've done some costume stuff for Collider, uh, little white lies girls on tops who do the cool um t-shirts with the filmmaker or actress names on so i actually have the sandy Powell on just because um yeah so like a variety of places basically if there's something costume related i will spread the love so. awesome but yeah the, um, my most recent one is the l piece about the crown so if anyone's interested in the crown and I, specifically princess awesome. diana that's what that piece is those princess diana costumes are so and see now we have to stop talking because now i'm just gonna we're gonna get into a whole other topic but i know a lot of people are very into the crown at the moment so go seek out emma's interview um and also if you've never gotten into ventured into sci-fi fangirls land it's wonderful everything is amazing Go fight sci-fi fan girls. I love that they just let me like talk about all costumes from genre that I would like to talk about, and there's so many. So, and from contemporary to going back to like Bewitched, like I married a witch. There's a lot of old stuff on there as well. So cool. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, yeah, this is amazing. You. All right, I'm gonna. This is where you'll hear like the music that's not yakety sax, and then there'll be me all by myself. Um, sad and alone reading a list of patron names so thank you so much guys this is a song like microphone but it's not the microphone song boom that's going to do it for this our discussion of the costumes and under things of pp bbc ae pride and prejudice miniseries thanks so much to emma and to keenan for joining us once again you can find keenan on twitter at sweet nothing nyc and emma at frasbelina that's f-r-a-z as in Z B E L I N A. As for us, you can find us on Twitter at 
PodlanderCast on Facebook at facebook.com slash PodlanderCast on TikTok, which we aren't really using yet, but give us time. We'll get there at PodlanderCast on Instagram at Alice Jew. That's me, but it's mostly podcast stuff. And on Patreon, where you can support the show and get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to our Slack channel, and more at patreon.com slash PodlanderDrunkCast. Thanks to all our patrons. We can do the show without you, but we especially want to thank the following folks... Julia Gulia, Kathleen Martini, Kelsey Kemp, Madison Johnson, Emily Day, Betsy English, Caitlin Reddick, Ashley Takison, Tina Barnett, The Other Janine, Kristen, Alicia Glenn, Liz and Tinkerbell, Stella Welch, Cena Perez, Chrissy Shively, Denise Perkins, Kayla Reagan, Rachel Lazan, Rochelle Lefevre, Amanda Smizaza, Heather Robbins, Sweet Sassy Molassi, Brittany Holbert, Emily Carlson, Amy Gustafson, Rachel Townsend, Steph Peterson, Kelly Mazella, Maria, Chantel Salters, Mary the Falling Statue, Philip Naku, Tara Lucchino, Viv Pickles at Flora, Mary Lumpkin, Jennifer Polkowski, Ann Gibson, Ruth McCormick, Katie Kirshner, Kara Marlowe, Trish McCrary, Jen Lander Drunklin, Kelly Bodden, and Amanda Newton. Uh, and always Kiki the Wise. Uh, thank you so much. You make the show possible. Uh, we will be back next week when we talk about the miniseries as a whole. It's our big miniseries wrap up. So uh, come back and listen to that. Bye.